Hello, and welcome to Technology and Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Fred Natus, author of Star Settlers, The Billionaires, Geniuses, and Crazed Visionaries Out to Conquer the Universe, published August 4th, 2020 by Pegasus Books. Thank you for speaking with me. Oh, thanks for having me. So, um, tell me first, uh, what, what's your field of space? How, how'd you get into writing and studying on this subject? Oh, sure. Uh, I'm more of a historian, so I came through it with my interest in, uh, popular science and how ideas circulate in the popular realm about technology and science. Mm -hmm. And so I had written about science fiction and, um, sort of scientific, what I called wonder shows, displays of dazzling, you know, science and technology at world's fairs. Mm -hmm. And slowly got interested. Uh, I'm not quite sure why, but I think I became one of those Mars people when when the rover photos started coming back showing the landscapes of Mars. Mm -hmm. and I started, so I started thinking about um, space and how people how people think about it, promote it, why they think we're. I guess the ideology really behind uh, a lot of people who are space enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. How do you focus the book? Is it sort of by biographies person by person or is it by theme how do you sort yeah it's a little it's a little bit of both i i, I you know I, I did try to do it somewhat historical by talking about uh the the mars craze in the late 1800s early 1900s the whole dispute about the channels or canals on mars and how that blew up and actually in my point of view kind of kind of created science fiction it developed a a fascination with this idea of life on other planets. Mm -hmm. So I begin with that uh, premise of looking at the Mars mania. I mean, there was a real popular cultural phenomena. There were two steps being broadcast. There were all sorts of plays and books coming out at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, even at World's Fairs back then, they had uh, rides to the moon and, you know, simulation rides to the moon and Mars in, in, in the early, like, 1903 World's Fairs. Mm -hmm. And it's Coney Island. So anyway, that's how I started. <laughs> And then I move on to talk about the kind of obvious uh, early rocketeer, rocketeering figures, people like Tsiolkovsky mm -hmm. and Goddard. Then I talk, then I kind of jump ahead to my, my – I spent a long time at a Mars Society con conference in 2018. It might have been the last one they had in person. No, I guess they had one last summer. But anyway, um, so, that I, so I'm talking more about modern Mars research and the whole terraforming issue in that chapter. Mm -hmm. Then I move on. Yeah, I try to keep it somewhat historical. I, I talk about the space colonies movement uh, of the 70s, mm -hmm. spearheaded by Gerard O'Neill. Um, I also I, I take a sort of trip backwards to look at the uh, biosphere, too, down in Arizona, which you know had a lot of controversy at the time. Mm -hmm. I think for my purposes of looking at this fascination in the popular realm of what space might be, uh, they were, in a sense, trying to create their idea of what a interstellar, you know, spaceship might be like or what it might be like to create a colony people would want to live on somewhere mm -hmm. so, so that's the sort of thing and then i get on to discussion about the moon and how it's become the focus all of a sudden lately and uh move on to uh talking to some researchers at the my university here the uh, university of california santa barbara mm -hmm. working on the uh, microchip the star chip project to send a one gram um interstellar uh star chips by laser to, uh, I guess, Alpha Centauri system. And they hope to do that by 2040. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Yuri Milner's project as well. And, and then I kind of wrap it up with this, looking again at this idea of the overarching ideology of space flight and 
those who are, I think, really hyper about it, you know, to the point of thinking that it's almost constructing a religion of sorts or a mythology of why it has to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask how many, as you did your research, how much of what you came across seemed to be very scientifically grounded versus more, like you say, sort of a, a religious and mystical experience to get out into space, you know, like wild ideas versus the, the serious science. Uh, I would like to think it's about 50 50, <laughs> but I, 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 I certainly do. Uh, I, I, I like giving the wild eyed people their, their chance to, 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 because their ideas I think may ground other people, you know, in the background in, in some ways. So, mm -hmm. uh, that's why I was covering them. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I agree. I certainly, um, imagination and zeal are, you know, perhaps, more important than even the science in the sense of getting people moving and moving forward and interested. Yeah. No. And uh, I mean, that's in a sense how I covered people like Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos and Branson, Richard Branson, that, that, cause I think they all kind of, they came from that childhood and adolescence of reading science fiction. And, and uh, I, you know, it's hard to tell with Jeff Bezos if he's just pretending about all his wild eyed ideas or, and just, out to profit to as best he can, or mm -hmm. if he really wants to create huge offs, you know, Gerard O'Neill type of colonies holding trillions of people mm -hmm. and saving the earth. You know, this is, that, that's an interesting inflection point in the seventies with the rise of environmentalism, mm -hmm. the space community was like, well, no, we don't have to, we don't have to, uh, we don't have to respect limits. We don't have to worry about sustaining our ecosystem if we can expand, you know, into limitless space. So I, again, I think that's a, a moment of departure, which a lot of the, if you will, ideology hinges on this idea, oh, we're going to save the Earth uh, by leaving the planet. Mm -hmm. So actually, it's funny. I'm reading, um, where it's interesting, I'm reading Red Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson, and, and a lot of that stuff involves not so much saving the planet, part, partly, but also escaping it, you know, escaping the Earth to, you know, find more pristine areas. I'm curious about your thoughts on that, you know, as escaping rather than saving. Yeah, my original working title for the book was, uh, I think, Escaping the Earth. And uh, I just felt like that didn't, I, I don't think anyone really is saying, let's discard the Earth, you know. Hmm. I just not, obviously, it's not even practical. Maybe if it was, people would be more serious in that <laughs> uh, camp. But, uh, I think, again, this idea of extending the human presence is more, you know, the, the, the keynote of a lot of a lot of this sort of thought. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So tell me about the uh, involvement of the Alfred P. Sloan Fellowship in the Public Understanding of Science and Technology program helping you with this book. Oh, well, they basically they just decide to fund people's projects. And I was one of the lucky ones that year. So. Mm hmm. So I think I, I you know, I, I pitched my book as sort of every man's approach to the space science rather than uh, a expert insider view, more of a, you know, in history, they talk about history science, they talk about internalist versus externalist accounts. And, and I say, I'm, this is an externalist account. I'm trying to um, approach it, uh, not wide eyed, but in, with some naivete, you know, and trying to get people to tell me what they think about stuff. So. Mm -hmm. What restrictions do they place, if any, on, on on your particular work, or is it just here's the money, go forth? Literally, that what you described is what, how their approach was. I was pretty surprised, but pleased once I got used to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. There was there were no limits really. You know, I, I once they 
if they approved the um, approach I was taking in my uh, proposal, you know, that was it. Mm. There were no more real checks on it. Uh, so it was pretty great, really. So what, what individuals did you get to interview for this book to, to gather some of your information? Well, interestingly enough, Kim Stanley Robinson was one person I talked to or emailed conversation with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he's kind of a step back from his enthusiasm about Mars. Uh, I don't, he's writing what, what they call now cli-fi, you know, mm-hmm. sort of apocalyptic climate science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's, he's more concerned about the Earth at this point, but he also was... The reports about the um, percolates in the soil on Mars made him think twice about the grand schemes of, you know, terraforming. And the other thing he mentioned was the idea that there might actually be, you know, microbial life there now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sort of fits with the idea that he was looking for, the, the colonists were looking for a pristine nature to work with. And if it's not pristine, maybe we shouldn't be messing with it. More of an environmentalist, uh, but I think what they used to call a deep ecology approach, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> respecting nature, whatever, wherever it is, yeah. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Who else were you able to uh, to talk to? Any any notable names? Any well known? Yeah, I talked to Freeman Dyson, which was kind of fortunate. I, last uh, fall, so a few months before he died, and uh, hmm. uh, you know, he didn't. He, he just kind of reiterated his ideas. Uh, he talked a little bit about the uh, let's see the program that he was involved in, where they were going to load up a, a, a um, spaceship with a, like tons of uh, thermonuclear weapons to, to power it. Mm, um, right. Oh, Project Orion, I think it was called. That's actually mm-hmm. from the late 1950s. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, at the time, they were looking for a way to get to Mars really quick. I, I did read another account of it where the um, one of the designers, I think he had some buyer's remorse of, for building, so, designing so many nuclear weapons. He's like, well, here's a way we could use them in, you know, in, a, in an affirmative way. <laughs> So that his idea was that they were going to do a grand excursion to Mars and, uh, you know, uh, on this uh, nuclear bomb-powered uh, rocket ship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I talked about about that a bit with him and also his vision of, uh, again, all the people I spoke with about interstellar um, research like James Benford, and uh, uh, who's working with Yuri Milner, and, uh, the uh, again, the, the, the uh, group at Santa Barbara University of California, um, uh, Philip Lubin uh, with the Starship program. You know, they all they all say it has to be a, 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 a what they call beamers of some sort, whether it's lasers or a microwave or even particles you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But you can't. The idea is you can't really take your fuel with you. You can't. You know, you can't have it all on board a ship if you're trying to if you're trying to you know, go light years away. I'm speaking with Fred Natus, author of Star Settlers. You can find more information about his work at frednatus.com. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. How often, how many of the people you either researched or talked to seemed more, more about let's, let's get there and then figure out how to fix the problems versus let's look at the problems first before we jump ahead with our technology or our, or our plans? 
I mean, I did speak with Robert Zubrin of the Mars Society, and obviously he's fleshed out a lot of plans for uh, uh, settling Mars with, you know, sending uh, sending robotic missions ahead to set up an infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I'm mean, in some ways, he's very, he, at least, on you know, he offered all these practical plans, but he obviously has this sense, if we don't terraform Mars, we're, you know, we're failing, we're failing the universe in some way. I mean, and again, it, it can be that that's just a rhetorical flourish to, to spread his enthusiasm to others. But on the other hand, it seems like this part of this, um, what I would call a creating a kind of mythic thinking about why we have to expand and this idea of evolution, almost a cosmic sort of evolution of Tsiolkovsky's famous phrase about the earth being a cradle and, you know, and humanity can't stay in this cradle forever. Mm-hmm. So creating this kind of demand, the universe is demanding that we do all this. Uh, so I think he shared a little bit of that, but again, obviously he was a very practical engineer on some level. So, and, and then same with somebody like James Benford. I mean, uh, I, you know, it's fascinating to me that they're talking about things that really, like with interstellar, uh, might not take place for thousands of years, if ever, but mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of dedicating their careers in some some ways to, to this enormous goal that's not in, within our lifetimes. So that's kind of fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. One question I've asked others in the past, I'll ask you this, is how much, so the current interest in space, you know, with the billionaires, do you see it as at this point, the technology reached the right point where we could do this, or is it more that these billionaires, the individuals in place, were the ones who are making this, who are creating this big push and interest in space again? Yeah, I I, I would just say that those are intertwined. I mean, someone like Robert Bigelow, who uh, he he was a hotel uh, magnate who purchase technology from NASA for inflatable space structures mm-hmm. and I at NASA I guess let him license it and uh, he he threw millions of dollars at it and improved it and they've already launched some of it up to the space station at this point mm-hmm. so he, he's he's all about creating habitats um, eventually they're like floating hotels or conference centers or you know moon habitats mm-hmm. so the technology is there um, and again that might be why the the moon uh, has become so alluring of late mm-hmm. yeah obviously the interstellar people are just working on on the idea level now i mean the university of california group you know they, they're giving themselves another 20 years to get a one gram spaceship packed with sensors um, um headed towards a another star system mm-hmm. So I mean, there, and I think again, there they did. He did tell me, well, you know, this technology was developed by DARPA. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's not like they invented it on their own. They're again trying to perfect it uh, and, and develop because they're working on the idea. Well, you can't create these giant lasers like Flash Gordon or whatever. Um, so they're going to try to create arrays of, frankly, I don't know how many thousands, tens of thousands of smaller lasers that can be put in phase. Mm-hmm to have the same kind of impact. Um, but again, this is to, to launch one gram space crafts, so to speak. So it, it, there's, it's not quite, you know, it's, they're scientists. So they're not, they're not, they're not just dreamers. Yeah. Right. Now, one thing, um, you know, I often hear this, a statement made that, you know, people are praising SpaceX, basically private companies saying, Oh, look, you know, they're getting it done. The government can't do it. You know, look how much better it is that, 
you know, it's commercialized so that people can really get stuff done. And yet a lot of commentators that I've come across have, have pointed out none of this technology, none of these processes are new, that NASA and the government did develop them. It's, you know, the, these companies are basically reusing what's come before. So I don't know if you have a comment on that. I don't know if I can comment with a great deal of expertise. Uh, it seems like SpaceX with the idea of, you know, returning uh, parts of the spacecraft back to the launch pad for reuse, that was a big step forward. Mm-hmm. But and I think the idea is, of course, NASA was always, contra- their, you know, their, their home, what's the word for it, their mission or... Uh, all along, their their purpose was to, to, to you know to, to farm out their uh, technology to to corporations. So it's not like they were completely inventing things on their own. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like perhaps uh, what a lot of people talked about was well, with the government, you know, you get a new administration and uh, all, all those grand plans that you had for Mars by twenty thirty or whatever forty mm-hmm. uh, get scrapped, uh, and it was you know the next. So there's no co- continuity for. For, for these grand planning these grand missions and whereas these mil- billionaires have the resources to kind of as long as their other companies don't fail to uh, keep working towards a goal that maybe isn't as feasible for NASA even with its greater resources in some ways mm-hmm. yeah though I'll, I'll mention one of my uh, previous interviews this older older guy who's been in the space program for a while said that the reusable idea was actually pursued like in the 50s or 60s, but was abandoned for, but they they had been developing it back then. So um, Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But uh, I guess that hadn't ever been put into, you know, into play that I know of. Maybe maybe I'm wrong on that, yeah. No, I think, yeah, I think that's what happened. They didn't didn't pursue it. Um, But anyway, I I just wanted to. No, that's fine. I don't mind you correcting the record there. (laughs) (laughs) As you did your research, did you come across any issues that you thought, or maybe the you know as as you spoke with people stuff they kept bringing up anything within space business technology or policy um, that really concerned them about going forward and anything that was sort of an obstacle for space development. Uh, I think just the obvious things having to do with space medicine and uh, for example, uh, I spoke with uh, uh, a guy who wrote his dissertation on reproduction in space mm-hmm. and uh, human reproduction and how little that has been studied. He, you know, he, he said that simply uh, NASA is too squeamish to, to be um, sponsoring any kind of studies of sexuality or mm-hmm. at least human reproduction in space. Uh, but obviously there's a lot of medical concerns about that. So the, the long-term goals of colonizing, uh, whether it's the moon or Mars or, you know, O'Neill-type colonies, mm-hmm. in some ways hinges on that. Uh, as well as the, um, you know, even at the, when I was at the Mars Society conference, there were plenty of people talking about, you know, we all are dreaming of, of, of creating these colonies on Mars, but we have no idea what the practical problems could be. You know, even I think the uh, issues of the lower gravity, the radiation levels, the idea of having a, a bunch of teenagers that are like really angry all of a sudden because their, their parents are saying, well, you actually, you can't go back to Earth. Sorry. <laughs> Your body's not going to be able to take it. So the danger of angry adolescents <laughs> on small space colonies is, <laughs> was an interesting issue they brought up. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, those were the the main ones I was hearing was were more on the medical side. Obviously, technology. I, I thought I think the other issue for me, is, which is why I spent time with the biosphere too, is 
why would you want to live on a really drab, you know, steel and concrete and whatever um, environment? It seems like it could be, you know, really depressing uh, after a while, after the after the novelty and the sense of adventure wore off. It could be kind of like one people, one person described living on O'Neill Colony as being on a, you know, giant uh, Greyhound bus, <laughs> <laughs> which is not, you know, quite as alluring as. Uh, <laughs> It's more like the, uh, the science fiction images of the uh, of the penal colonies, you know, the the, the poor miners <laughs> trapped on these different moons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, those are the kind of, I, you know, as far as the actual technology, I, I think, you know, you can correct me, but as far as working within the uh, solar system, I think they, they, they're pretty good with, <laughs> with the general, you know, approaches they're using in terms of getting places. Mm-hmm. Obviously, land, landing on Mars apparently is a, is a huge technical problem because of its lack of atmosphere and, and low gravity. I, I, so I, I think that could be a, maybe an issue if you're constantly sending, you know, every two years sending supply uh, sh- shipments there, get, getting things onto the surface of the planet. Sounds like it could be a bit of an issue. Mm-hmm. Did you come across any consensus as far as whether um – we should be going to the moon first or Mars first or, um, cause I know yeah. there's that debate. Yeah. When I first started in 2016, all that's talk, or maybe it's because I was also one of these people, but all the talk was about Mars, you know, and you know, we already done the moon and let's move on to the next great prize. Mm-hmm. And then it suddenly shifted in about by uh, 2018, you know, all the talk was towards the moon. Um, and again, I think uh, there were some practical reasons just because, uh, as I said, it's a good place to test out infrastructure and technologies. And, you know, we never tried to create a presence on the moon uh, mm-hmm. as for, you know, for having a, a crude, or man, people say we shouldn't use the word manned anymore, a crude um, station there. Mm-hmm. So I think the consensus seems to be moving back to, yeah, okay, this moon thing is kind of a drag, but let's. I even heard one NASA scientist who was a moon specialist like, yeah, you know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm a star again. I got, I got, <laughs> I was working on moon uh, when everybody else was talking about Mars all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, uh, I think Buzz Aldrin called it, uh, what did he call it? Magnificent desolation or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. That was a description of the moon. Mm-hmm. And, and back in when the different Bush presidencies were talking about a, a moon to Mars um, missions, Again, Aldrin was like, you know, it's not a place for, <laughs> it's the most desolate landscape you can imagine. It's not a kind of place you really want to be for any length of time. Uh, mm-hmm. But again, I think the, 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 uh, the ESA is working on their, their um, moon village idea. I, I don't know how, that seems very drawing board at this point, but it, they're trying to imagine how you could get a conglomerate of people out there, some of them scientists, some of them business interests, some of them tourists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and and, and uh, create a habitat for them, but I think the idea is you know Mars is just too risky <laughs> at mm-hmm. this point, right? As it, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask where do you get all the money for a moon base? You know, there's there's little bits here and there for parts of it, but overall, it seems like how do you really get you know make that happen? You know, it's not like sending pe- settlers out across the you know the prairie or something you know, to make do. Yeah, I'm sure that's, uh, but the fact is that even the, uh, U.S. law has changed to pretty much super vent the, uh, the, the, uh, outer space treaty, which 
pretty much stated that no countries could really make a claim to uh, the uh, to, to a, uh, the moon or um, even asteroid. I think for for, monet, for monetizing it, mm -hmm. and that was changed. I think Obama signed that into law, pretty much ignoring the uh, space treaty. Hmm. And they've done that in Europe as well. I know Luxembourg has. I haven't looked recently who else. But I think, you know, banking centers are, are, are willing to uh, take some risks on, um, I guess, with the, with the idea that there will be incentives from mining possibly for um, rare uh, metals uh, uh, that, that are not necessary for high-tech projects. So the moon apparently is believed um, to have some of the, those metals. So. Hmm. And, and then I guess tourism again is what everybody talks about. Oh yeah, and it's let's face it, uh, Branson's charging customers two hundred fifty thousand dollars a seat for uh, three minutes of weightlessness mm -hmm. on, the, on these suborbital flights. Uh, there are uh, there are a lot of multimillionaires out there who are willing to maybe spend a couple million to go to the ISS, uh, which is now being made available as well mm -hmm. to tourists. So I think that's one of the Skimming money from tourists is one of the ways to build an yeah. infrastructure. Hey, why not? Um, yeah, it's worked for a lot of people. So, um, <laughs> so are there? Did you come across many investment banks that have sort of space portfolios? Since you since you mentioned that, uh, no, I, I, I my research didn't really go too far into the business end, uh, so I can't really answer that. Okay, it's yeah. interesting. It, yeah, it's an interesting angle for for more research on my part, at least. Now, did you come across any challenges with all this that that people were saying could easily be fixed or, or addressed but weren't for whatever reason? Again, this could be a legal thing or, or anything, really. Uh, well, again, I think the fact that the idea that private companies are being told that they can legally go out and grab an asteroid <laughs> was a challenge that was overcome. I mean, I spoke with... Um, a lot of the people, I, I, I mentioned the O'Neill colonies, and I spoke with the woman who helped lead the um, the L5 society. It was kind of the youth annex of the um, of the space colonization movement, and, and she was just, like, so angry that, you know, the space, they, they, they killed a similar, even broader tree that was going to be a plan specifically about the moon mm -hmm. uh, that would have limited, you know, um, any profiteering or, or land land if that's right word land claims on the moon mm -hmm. so yeah I guess that's that's uh, one of the challenges that uh, the kind of a more utopian or um, idealistic notion of space is for everyone um, it's every, uh, the heritage of all humanity um, that's kind of being pushed <laughs> aside gently mm -hmm. uh, for yeah. more of a capitalist approach to uh, to creating infrastructure. Hmm. Um, are there, so I'm going to turn towards how you did your research. We already talked about it a little bit, um, but are there any other issues you talk about in the book um, that we haven't touched on that you might want to point out? Well, you know, the main thing is I, I spent, uh, like I mentioned, uh, this idea of the ideology and, and, and the, uh, creating an enthusiasm for space by aligning it with uh extra scientific ideas, you know, uh, even, you know, notions of the apocalypse, uh, that the idea of a 
death of an old world and birth of a new world, you know, creating life on revitalizing a planet like Mars and terraforming, uh, this sense of, uh, well, evolution is actually in somehow a guided process close to intelligent design ideas that humanity needs to, um, to do this, or is it failure of some sort? It was again. Those. That's the kind of. That was a bundle of ideas that I follow throughout the book. Hmm. Okay. So I, yeah, I guess I'd say that that, that really technological utopian notion of humanity is almost can make themselves into gods, which you see that in a lot of the popularized accounts of you know by futurists of just amazing possibilities coming up with mind uploads and. You know, post-human life forms, and uh, you know that's that sort of uh, those kind of riff riffing on the, that kind of idea. Yeah, it's. I'm trying to think of a, an analogy of any other technology or or sort of scientific endeavor. Well, I guess maybe you look at genetic research. You know, on one hand, you have people who are thinking grand ideas of of you know curing every disease, and then you have other people who are thinking of it in terms of you know, manipulating the the body and mind for whatever more monetary need or something. Yeah. And I suppose in, in, um, artificial intelligence too, there's, I mean, that's just, there, there are a lot of, uh, I think you haven't heard much about it lately, but a couple of years back, there was all this talk about the coming singularity when, you know, artificial mm-hmm. intelligence creates a super mind that's just going to, make humanity obsolete and mm-hmm. create these incredible changes in society. So again, a millennialist notion, and that was coming out of, uh, I think Google's chief engineer, uh, Kurzweil, uh, Ray Kurzweil. Mm, yeah. I haven't heard from him lately, but yeah, these, there, there's people who will push these huge technological utopian, uh, platforms like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all seem to kind of connect to this idea of humanity is either completely obsolete or is going to become godlike in some way. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, um, these different approaches. I'm speaking with Fred Natus, author of Star Settlers. You can find more information about his work at com. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. All right, so... You mentioned some of the interviews you did. What uh, what other um, resources did you use for your research? Uh, well, I was able to go to a couple archives. So I visited um, when I did a chapter about uh, Werner von Braun. I mm. was able to go to his papers. Uh, I think at the Library of Congress in Washington. Mm. And uh, one of the great things with having the fellowship is I came across his scrapbooks, and of course I could look through them and read all the English. Uh, Articles, but there are also a lot in German, and uh, I don't have the grounding for for understanding those articles. And normally, on a limited budget and timeline, I would have said, "Oh well, I wonder what's in those," but I'll never know. But instead, I was able to scan them and hire a translator, and it was pretty 
I think was a little bit fresher material to see how uh, in post-war Germany what they thought of von Braun and uh, you know, Project Paperclip and all these ex-Nazis going off to work for the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of s scorn and uh, satire. One of them was a dialogue between a mother and a son, uh, and the son was saying, you know, I, I should like to, I wish I was a war criminal. And the mom was saying, what are you talking about? And he, should, he was saying, well, then I could live in Texas and eat pineapples. And she says, I have no idea what you mean. And he says, well, if I was a war criminal, I, there wouldn't be food rationing, and I'd be helping design V-2 rockets in, in Texas, or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. So, um there, you didn't see that as much of that in the United American press as you did in the German press. It seems like oh, there was wow. a lot. There was a movement amongst a petition amongst U.S. scientists saying, you know, we don't want these guys here. They're they're a they're a moral hazard. Uh, pretty much being ignored. Other people saying, well, actually, it's better that we have them. You know, the safest place for, for these guys is within our military. Mm -hmm. uh, one article is called, you know, behind the khaki curtain, we have secret Nazis in our midst, you know, so these kind of scare articles in the in the U.S. press as well. Mm -hmm. But as far as I know, the Soviets also did that. They grabbed a bunch of si rocket scientists uh, that oh, they yeah. could get their hands on and put them to work. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, but the fact is they, they brought, uh, they were planning to bring uh, just 25 uh, scientists or technicians, engineers, uh, along with as many V-2 rockets and parts as they could back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And Von Braun, you know, was a, quite a charming fellow, and he was able to convince the people interrogating him that they really needed to take at least 100. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, so the, and, and they were going to be on a six-month contract, and most of them ended up you know, staying for life and becoming U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's pretty fascinating story there of, of how they adapted to the U.S. and how uh, Von Braun so skillfully uh, played the press and the media and became a, um, he really became the uh, the face of the space future in, in the U.S. For, in the 1950s and early 60s, until the astronauts took over the hmm. center stage. Yeah. There's this uncomfortable 10-year uh, period where Von Braun was having launched, you know, a... Um, a satellite just shortly after the Russians did their coup with Sputnik, uh, mm -hmm. he was able to get a, a, the Explorer up about four months later, and he came became a hero, you know, a, a relief to everybody in the U.S. that mm -hmm. we were made so foolish. So he got interviewed by um, a lot of people. Uh, there was a big spread in the Collier's magazine in the, in the late 50s, I want to say, or no, mid-50s, with all sorts of um, great sci-fi artists, uh, depicting what a space station could look like. Um, when he talked to military people, he would say, you know, I don't want this space station just to be for observations. Uh, it can also be for, you know, surveillance for military purposes. And then he said, and here's the great thing. We can load it up with nuclear weapons hmm. and, we'll, and we'll be, you know, unstoppable. We can vanquish any enemy. So there's a, he was, then once he became involved with NASA and left the military, he's like, "Well, we don't need, we don't really need those nuclear weapons on the moon or, or space stations." Hmm. But he was able to manipulate his way um, pretty well. Hmm. But I, I think he, I think you could say he was one of these people who really did have this 
spacefaring vision of, of, of humanity needed to to make this cosmist kind of move into you know into outer space was the destiny of humanity interesting so what part of the research was most enjoyable let's see it was fun for me to, to talk to actual living people. <laughs> I, I think as a, as, as a historian, it becomes a grind to sit in the archives after a while, looking through folders. It, can't, it has its rewards, but it's also it's a little little like being a, a grave robber without the Indiana Jones <laughs> swashbuckling aspects. <laughs> so it, it, I enjoyed talking to people when I could, you know. Um, also, just coming across. Uh, People that weren't aren't normally a part of the story too much. I came across a guy named Peter Koch, who's still alive now. He's quite elderly, but he put out a um, periodical ten times a year called the Moon Miners Manifesto. Hmm. And he he had started out in the fifth. Uh, let's see, I think it wasn't until the seventies really. But he was hoping to write a science fiction novel about the moon, and he ended up just becoming so engrossed that the novel disappeared, and he just started putting out this. Mag- Oh, this magazine about how we had to create a human, you know, a new home for the humans on the moon and how can we make it a place people want to live and, you know, what what could the culture be like, uh, as well as imagining different kinds of uh, uh, underground colonies and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. he, I, I, I find those grassroots kind of people working on their own uh, fascinating to me. Uh, he, he claims that he helped uh, he and uh, a group called the, well, it might have been uh, actually Werner von Braun's group, the plant, um, the uh, Mar- the Moon Prospector mission was something that they were talking about their conferences, and they were able to hook in a NASA scientist who said, yeah, that's actually a great idea. So the the mapping of the Moon, which showed the possible ice in the craters uh, near the poles, was came out of that to some extent some pressure from that, that grassroots group, the, the Moon Society and his Moon Miners Manifesto, hmm. uh, saying, you know, this needs to be done. Uh, so it's, to me, I like the idea that it's not all just a top-down um, story, that there is some of this bottom-up sort of uh, uh, energy going on. Yeah, yeah, that is cool. What did he come across that was most surprising? Yeah, I, I guess it just for me, it, it found us an article called Models of Long-Range Growth by a guy named William Gale. And I, I thought, okay, this is full of mathematical formulas, so I'm not going to be able to follow it. But it was quite easy, actually, to follow. Uh, and the whole premise was, uh, how long will it take to settle a galaxy? You know, And uh, and they came up with the figure of about a million years. And, and, uh, and uh, just it's fascinating to me that people hmm. uh, are doing that kind of number crunching mm-hmm. and coming up with their their standards for making those kind of assessments and and just that whole line of thought is uh to me uh pretty exotic <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. The, the, though it, it what seems strange at first later seems to be the the foundation for ideas that actually work out so yeah it could be it's uh, you could call it pioneering work or you could call it out there work that's <laughs> Never going to hook up with anything, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I, I yeah, I kind of hooked that in because it, they're, they're I think they're kind of working backward from from the Kardashev uh, scale notion of uh, detecting, you know, extraterrestrial civilizations. Um, the idea that a Kardashev one civilization would be harnessing 
all the energy on a planetary surface. Mm -hmm. And Carter shift two is uh, harnessing all the en available energy from a star, and, and a three is the galaxy. And, and it, to me, it seems like that was uh, shifted around to talk about, well, why aren't we, we're not even a Kardashev one yet. What's going on here? <laughs> I, got a, I, th I think uh, Carl Sagan said, well, maybe we're a 0.7. I, he might have been being generous. At the t <laughs> but, but still, this idea, well, well now we've got a scale that we can, we can chart our own progress against. Uh, I think the, the, the article I mentioned was looking at well, how would you how would you become a Kardashev two or three? How long would it take? You know, <laughs> in a technology aside, uh, so. So, and this is kind of stepping foot maybe into the science fiction realm. But how often did you come across people who believe that it's necessary to basically get alien minds, you know, involved in our progress? You know, that we can't do it alone. Did you come across? You must have come across some of that. Oddly enough, I didn't. You know, in, in some of my other books, I have spent a little bit of time. I, my first book on Wonder Shows, I did a chapter on the flying saucer culture of the 1950s. Mm -hmm. uh, it, but I, either I wasn't looking for it, I was debating whether that would be an entirely different book. Mm -hmm. uh, but it seemed, you know, for most of these people, look, outer space is empty real estate <laughs> and to some extent i mean that was the, the, this idea of the kardashev civilization spreading throughout the galaxy in a million years mm. uh wasn't really concerned with alien encounters or um bringing them into the fold so to speak mm. so i didn't you know maybe because i wasn't looking for it i didn't find that too much about the only figure i i found even talking about it at all was Robert Bigelow, the uh, again the Las Vegas entrepreneur, mm. because he's not only you know uh, building the uh, space habitats and launching them, but um, he's very much a a, uh, a believer in in, in uh, alien you know, extraterrestrials. He claims to have had his own encounters. His and his family grew up. It's been based in Nevada for a long time, and his grandparents talked about it too. Mm. And apparently he got a lot of funding from the Pentagon um, to uh, to create his own Project Blue Book, looking at um, military uh, records of possible encounters and video footage and supposedly even artifacts. You know, and this apparently created, obviously, a lot of interest in, in the UFO community. Uh, but again, I, I don't really have a chapter on that. Um, and it seems to me... Uh, in general, people interested in UFOs, maybe the military is, or the government is, but in the society at large, it tends to be the more powerless people who can imagine being aligned with these kind of cosmic forces, whereas uh, billionaires are... Uh, I talked to one guy in the space tourism industry who was like, well, you know, billionaires are really an alien species. <laughs> but but he, he said it in an admiring way, but... Uh, yeah, I think for them it's open real estate to be exploited. So I didn't run into to that kind of uh, those kind of theories too often. Mm -hmm. So the the big names that I'm familiar with, I'll, I'll list them and, and tell me who I'm missing if there's anyone oh. additional. There, so there's Bigelow, Bezos, Musk, Branson. Are there others billionaires engaged in in space stuff to a, to a large degree? Uh, well, I think Yuri Milner uh, uh, he, uh, um, is a is a tech entrepreneur who's also been putting 
money up for challenges like the Starshot, the Starship idea. Mm-hmm. His group adopted that one. Um, I can't think of any other billionaires. There are there are certainly entrepreneurs who are trying to to get in the uh, into the space market. I, I I think I was began to talk about the uh, whole issue of space medicine and reproduction, and there was a corporation from the Netherlands, uh, I think founded in 2010, called Space Life Origin, if I have that right. Mm-hmm. And and his and you know they capitalized. They had a few million um, dollars, and their whole idea was, well, let's give uh, women the opportunity to either be fertilized in space, and then they can come back to Earth and have ch- you know space children, mm-hmm. or we can actually bring pregnant women to space with a, with a you know, obstetrix team in, a, in, a, in a, a space station, and they can give birth in space. Again, I think catering to a, a wealthy clientele who would like the uh, bragging you know, rights to saying their child was born mm-hmm. off the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it didn't, he, he ended up realizing that he had been advised poorly about the medical consequences of, of some of these yeah. experiments and, and decided to pull the plug on the whole thing. But it, it was it was around for about six to eight years, I believe. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, was there a particular question um, you were really trying to dig into to get an answer for and either did not reach a satisfactory conclusion or maybe you did, but it just took a lot more effort than other stuff? Yeah, I'm not. Nothing's really popping to mind right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think my my big question was uh, had to do with equating this grandiose ideology of of, of human human expansion with you know with reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, think, I think kind of grounding it, and, and and I thought that when I started out that I'd be interviewing a lot of environmentalists and saying, you know, what do you think about leaving the planet? I didn't end up doing that uh, because really that argument came up historically in the 70s when the environmental movement was going strong and um, people like O'Neill were were saying, you know, uh, uh, there was a book came out called Limits to Growth from a think tank that became a huge worldwide bestseller about just the fact that, you know, we can't keep our industry is going at this current rate of using up resources. The planet's going to have a collapse, you know, uh, ecological, uh, you know, a lot of the things we're saying now, uh, uh, medical issues, uh, species disappearing. Um, and this really got the technological utopian community upset. And they're like, well, you know, we don't have limits. <laughs> we can, we can, we can, there's so many resources out there. And it, it's, it's a enticing idea. Uh, so in the 70s, that became a big debate, really, uh, between environmentalists and, uh, um, and well, I guess I'll call technological utopians. Mm-hmm. So I covered it more as, his, as a historian would, just looking at that issue in the 70s, but I didn't end up following that through to the present. I don't, you just don't see it much in the, you know, in the mass media. It's not... Um, People are either indifferent to space or they're really excited about it. <laughs> you don't see the people who are like angry about it, you know, too much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you mentioned one one issue, the Moon Mars thing. You kind of changed your ideas after between the start and the completion of this research. Were there any other big shifts for you as far as what you thought at first? I guess the other thing was I was kind of. Uh, it's a small point, but 
I, you know, I often uh, made the assumption, well, there's an obvious connection between space technologists and science fiction, but I thought that, you know, usually, and you get some of this, the scientists who write science fiction on the side, and so on and so forth, but um, I was kind of surprised when I realized that some of the early rocketry societies, uh, for example, uh, the um, Hugo Gernsbach's Amazing Stories, and then his next um, science fiction magazine, I think called Wonder Tales, I might have that wrong, um, there was a group of science fiction writers who decided to set up their, um, I think they call it the American Rocketry Society, uh, uh, American Interplanetary Society in 1930. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I read, you know, little glosses on that, oh, this is just a group of dreamers who, who got sidetracked and, you know, but it actually turns out that, that they uh, were pretty important. Um, it, they either blended into the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics or were the core group that became that. Hmm. And some of those, uh, some of those science fiction writers who were shooting off simple rockets on Staten Island using parts from, I think I read something from a milkshake canister, yeah. <laughs> things like that. They were really, uh, but they ended up running rocketry uh, companies that were building some of the engines for like the, um, I'm not sure if it's the, uh, the early uh, rocket planes in the in the fifties, like uh, uh, that, that program uh, that broke the you know the sound barrier, uh, hmm. they actually had, had built the engines for Bell Aircraft. Uh, so it fascinated me uh, that somebody, probably those guys had technological backgrounds, but that they were really just science fiction writers gathering and drinking and joking about this future, and they ended up you know, being the uh, American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Wow. So that was kind of surprising to me that they're uh, uh, such a strong uh, interweaving of these strands. It wasn't just uh, a, a facile, uh, you know, analogy you could make. Mm -hmm. they, they really were, yeah. Hmm. Cool. Interconnected. Yeah, that's really, that's a really interesting story. Um yeah, I'd add this, uh, I, the same thing happens in uh, Russia and in Germany. Obviously, uh, people like Werner von Braun. I mean, they all, both Goddard and Werner von Braun, they're like, oh man, I got to learn math. <laughs> both of them were fascinated by space travel, but the, the fact that, okay, now I have to become a te technologically versed person. Uh, but nevertheless, there was, it was an amateur rocketry society uh, founding in Germany in 1928 that, uh, or 27. Mm -hmm. that ended up being the, you know, the V2 program. And in Russia, similar idea, just a group of enthusiasts. There was a big craze over rocketry in the Russia, probably more so, I should say the Soviet Union, more so than anywhere else mm -hmm. uh, in the 20s. And they again um, uh, set up a society that ended up being the uh, quickly absorbed into the, into the Soviet army structure. And uh, they, they were the first... Uh, rocket uh, scientists in a sense part of part of a, of a world power mm -hmm. so again you know, the, the kind of amateur beginnings i had always thought that story was well yeah there are a lot of amateurs and you know and, and that just was a fad that ended it's interesting to see that a lot of them really got absorbed into the into what became the uh, um, space industries if you will or mm -hmm. military yeah, I think in the 20s, in the Soviet Union, science fiction was huge and the whole idea of using technology to to create the utopian society, you know, 
that they were yeah. looking for. Um, so yeah, I think science was a big part of their, their approach to, you know, fixing society and humanity in their, in their eyes. Yeah. I think it was, uh, it, it was fit the kind of notion of a revolutionary rebirth of a new, creating a new, like you say, a more utopian order mm-hmm. and, you know, abolishing, uh, religion and so forth. Uh, so you see it in the arts as well, you know, the high arts, whereas in the, in the U S it was this sort of, sort of embarrassing thing for adolescent, <laughs> pimply adolescent boys. But, you know, I think in Germany and Russia, they, they, they've, they've always taken it more seriously and, and never, uh, so it wasn't, uh, what's the word for it? It wasn't stigmatized. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so apart from sort of filling the, you know, historical record, you know, uh, filling the gaps within the historical record, what, what do you hope this book uh, will do for readers? Oh, for, for me, I think one thing is that, again, I'm looking at the more or less the, the dreamers, on, not on the fringe, but maybe at the core, but um, not uh, necessarily on the day-to-day simple, let's do this project, you know, JPL kind of guys, mm-hmm. and um, or gals, I should say. Um, so it fascinates me that people are building these schemes and, and blueprints uh, that might take centuries or millennia or never happen so for me that's uh, that dedication is pretty amazing to me mm-hmm. uh, and i do think that there's a, a semi-religious ideology motivating it, especially for those far-reaching uh, uh dreamers um for even for simple ideas like having self-sustaining col- colonies it seems like uh that's not that's not just around the corner i would say uh another thing uh, that i mentioned is that you know i I'm not sure that it's great that the billionaires are leading all this. This kind of—I uh, I suppose this again my more naive uh, or idealistic idea. I, I, I like what I read when I read the uh, the uh, International Space Treaty. This idea that it should be, you know, and, and the fact that some place like the ISS is this cooperative, uh, globalized uh, enterprise. Uh, to me, that's that's the positive side of all this, and mm-hmm. it's the whole profit motive. And and the idea, the escapist notion that oh we can you know we'll figure things out, is is kind of alarming when you think that when you look at what where the Earth is right now with the massive species die-offs and uh, global warming, rising sea levels, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I can kind of I'd sympathize with more of the Earth first technology and the point of view of the people who were writing the alarmist accounts back in the 70s mm-hmm. of the environmental disaster ahead. So yeah, a, a capitalist space future versus a, I don't know, I want to call it a socialist or a more um, cooperative space future, I guess is a, something I think is worth thinking through, mm-hmm. uh, even though it, most of the books being written today are all the, the glories of space 2.0 and how great it is this private enterprise is doing all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, can, I can sympathize to some extent, but I also think there's something sad about it. <laughs> Uh, are limited uh, on an idealistic level uh, I, I like the idea of a humanity that's worthy of leaving a planet is more appealing to me than uh, than pe- people just trying business as usual and uh, the same kind of techniques that have left this planet in semi-ruins at the moment mm-hmm. uh, more of the same status quo is concerning to me yeah I agree, though. Though in some circles that would be a revolutionary uh, attitude towards capitalism, but 
Yeah, but those are good points. Um, did you have any difficulties getting the book finished or published? Uh, no, it really went. Um, uh, no, I can't think of anything. It was just a matter of um, conceiving what I wanted to do, and, and I, I was fortunate to have the time and uh, resources to go through with it. Uh, I didn't get all the interviews I would have liked to. You know, a lot of people, uh, a lot of calls weren't returned. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah, that <laughs> so, happens. But, yeah, but it was still great, what, what, you know, the, the interviews I was able to conduct. Mm-hmm. So was it automatically going to be published by Pegasus, or did you complete it? Yeah, then- yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I already had the um, publishing uh, contract uh, before I got the funding through the Sloan Foundation. Okay, was that required to have the? the yeah, contract? they uh, they. Well, I, th- I think they wanted at least a letter of commitment from a publisher, wh- hmm. whether or not it was a contract. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so what's your um, either current or next writing project? Yeah, I, I'm not even certain at the moment. I've, hmm. Interesting, I've done a couple of these interviews, and, and people have been pointing off ideas on me. Somebody <laughs> said, oh, you should, you should follow through on that idea uh, of the early Russian cosmos that they were, you know, and I didn't even mention this, but their whole grand project was to defeat death. And this was the, hmm. uh, Nikolai Fedorov's idea that the whole common task of humanity was to defeat death and how that seems to be fascinating uh, again high-tech billionaire types these days mm-hmm. so that was one idea thrown my way <laughs> um i also have a more grounded idea possibly of writing about science education for kids mm-hmm. and how it's changed over the years and how there's this big push for gender parity and inclusiveness these days mm-hmm. um so and finally so yeah obviously i'm, I'm looking for a new project but uh I had floated the idea of, of, of um, a cross-cultural uh, study of robotics in in Japan versus the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, but I haven't gotten the funding yet for that, so that, that one may not happen. Okay. Okay. Well, where can people find you on the web, or can they? Do you have social media or website or anything? I do. I have a uh, – it's under my name. It's, it's www.frednadis.com one word f-r-e-d-n-a-d-i-s dot com mm-hmm. and i i think that's my twitter handle is at fred natus and the book itself has a facebook page star settlers uh if you look up the whole title on facebook you, you would land on it okay good good um so that's all the questions i have do you have any um final thoughts or words um no, I think I think we've we've covered it all pretty well. This point. <laughs> good, good. All right. Well, I appreciate you speaking with me. Well, th- thanks for having me. Uh, let me talk with you. It's great. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter to keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.